Galatians chapter 6, beginning with verse 6. We read, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Now before we discuss verse 6, which is complicated uh, for multiple reasons, I want to begin this morning uh, as we address this particular text by, by looking at the larger point Paul is seeking to make. And I think if in looking at this particular section of scripture, you wrap your brain around the larger concept at play, verse six begins to gain a measure of clarity. Now keep in mind, we all live, every one of us, if you're a believer, we all live in this constant tension between two opposing forces. On one side, this positive force, we are all possessed with the Holy Spirit. Upon salvation, the Spirit comes and dwells within each of us. We have the Spirit of God provided through God's amazing grace, which then works in our hearts and in our lives supernaturally by God to yield godly fruit results. But then on the other side, in tension with the Spirit, we have this negative force, the remains of our sinful and unregenerated flesh, which, if given allowance, will do nothing but work in our lives any and all forms of wickedness. We have this new identity in Christ. I'm filled with the Spirit of God, but then I have this flesh still waiting for resurrection, for new life. And these things are intention, battling this battle between the flesh and the spirit. And because these two forces, our flesh and God's spirit, cannot both be in control and will naturally oppose the influence of the other, Paul has made it abundantly clear through chapter 5 and into chapter 6 that the only way you deny your flesh, the opportunity to fulfill its evil intent, it's not through law nor legalism. It's not through rules and regulations, but instead choosing to walk in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit not only denies the flesh its role, but it yields naturally a greater godliness. And this, friend, is what makes legalism so dangerous. Not only does legalism fall short in fulfilling its aim to justify or to sanctify, but legalism minimizes the Holy Spirit's ability to accomplish its aim as well. It's not just that legalism fails to work, it's that it robs you from the thing that will work. Understand, the gospel and these distortions, they always emerge as a response, fundamentally, to a mis misdiagnosis, as a reaction to sinful behavior. 
being demonstrated in our lives, in the lives of Christians. Christians, by the way, saved and sanctified by God's grace. It then only stands to reason that we either excuse away such behaviors, which leads to this grace so I can do anything distortion, or we, we buy into a lie that grace alone isn't enough. So when there's sin in our lives, sin in the camp, sin in the life of a Christian, we have one of two reactions because we've misdiagnosed the core problem. We either excuse away behaviors and we employ grace so I can do anything, or we buy into the lie that grace isn't enough, that it alone, that it needs something. So then we build this grace and do these things model or grace, but don't do these things model because grace isn't enough, clearly because there's sin. And yet, while the existence of sinful behaviors is less than desirable and no one's advocating uh, anything contrary. The problem isn't a failure on the part of grace. When there's sin in your life, it's not grace's fault. Grace has never led a person into sin. Grace has never been abused. The problem instead centers on a failure to understand how grace transforms a person's life. Grace, initiated by Jesus' work on the cross, not only provides you incredible favor with God, but grace and grace alone maintains this favor through a continued relationship that you are now able to enjoy with Jesus. All of these things, by the way, made possible because you've been filled with the Holy Spirit upon regeneration. And if being justified and made right with God, in addition to having an incredible relationship with Jesus, wasn't enough, it's then the Spirit of God indwelling your life that naturally begins to yield godly attributes and godly behaviors. Always keep this important reality in mind. Godliness is impossible without the active involvement of the Spirit of God. It's impossible. As we've noted in previous studies, walking in the Spirit, or as Paul would also say, living in the Spirit, involves nothing more than constantly filling your life with opportunities to be supernaturally influenced by God. It's why we spend time in his word. It's why we spend time in prayer. It's why we spend time in community. We're giving ourselves opportunity to be supernaturally influenced, knowing that these things will naturally produce or yield, a manifest a reciprocating godly result. You see, sinful behavior in the life of a believer, <laughs> the moments that you and I step in it, when we totally flesh out and we completely blow it. When these things happen, they are not <clears throat> an indicator that God's grace has somehow failed, but are instead evidence that you're no longer engaging and involved in the things that are necessary to walking in the Spirit. The problem isn't that grace doesn't work. The problem is that you're no longer allowing grace to work. You're reverting to gospel distortions. You're employing other mechanisms that rob you from walking in the Spirit. 
This is what Paul means when in verses 7 and 8, he says a very powerful statement. He says, do not, this is a directive, it's a command, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Let's unpack this for a moment. This opening, do not be deceived, literally. Paul is appealing to these Galatians not to be led aside from the right way. He's pleading that they stop allowing themselves to be led into error. What these false teachers had come to Galatia peddling was not the truth. Paul has built a case explaining how it's a lie, how it's a distortion, how it claims to be a gospel, but as he says in chapter 1, it isn't a gospel. It was a deception. It looked as though it was something it wasn't. On account that legalism necessitates the inclusion of our flesh, it can never be the solution to sin. If there was something you could do to fix yourself, then you wouldn't have needed Jesus to die on the cross to fix you. Paul continues with this incredible and very radical declaration that God is not mocked. And the Greek, this word mocked, it, it means, and this, this doesn't ease what he's saying, it literally means to turn up the nose or to sneer. Now, on an, on an interesting side note, and this is free, um, this word in the Greek, this is the only time in the entire New Testament that the word's used. Like Paul doesn't use this word in any of his writings. No one else has used it, uses it in any other writings. This is the only time this word mocked is, is used in scripture, meaning that what's being communicated should raise your eyebrows and snag your attention. In context, Paul is saying that you are actively mocking the God of the universe, anytime you try to earn or seek to maintain God's favor apart from the work of Jesus on the cross. Do you understand that? That's what he's saying in context. If you're employing any of these other gospel distortions, it's such a serious thing because you're mocking God and more specifically, the fact he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross. Anytime you attempt to manufacture godly living in your life apart from the Holy Spirit's power, you're not only undermining and robbing yourself of the power necessary for transformation to occur, but you're making a mockery of the power of the Holy Spirit. Like regardless of the lies these false teachers were peddling to the Galatians. The spiritual life had been designed by God to operate only one way. A very specific principle that legalism tries to subvert, the concept of sowing and reaping. Paul writes, don't mock God. Don't be deceived for whatever a man sows. 
that he will also reap. You can argue against this. You can debate it. It is a law of the universe, sadly. This particular concept, sowing and reaping, has been twisted by the legalist into what I like to refer to as Christian karma, which states something like this. If you do blank for God, God will do blank for you. You know, whatever you're throwing out good, good stuff gets thrown back. If you're doing things to obey God, God will do things to bless you. This kind of tit for tat, which by the way, was the premise of the old covenant arrangement between God and the children of Israel, but is one today that flies in the face of the new covenant of grace. Now, that idea of Christian karma, we're going to unpack further uh, in, in next Sunday's study. And yet, I want to say this. While you can employ all types of topics um, with this, this, this particular model, if you do blank for God, God will do blank for you. But for illustrative purposes, you see this concept emerge more often than not when it comes to the topic of tithing. I just want to show you how legalism works in and uses this particular model. Many pastors exhort their congregations to faithfully tithe under the pretense that giving money to the church will prompt God to give money back to you in return. Like you've probably even heard it said, uh, you can never outgive God. Which by the way is a truth. It's absolutely a truth, but it gets twisted and it gets warped, tragically. Ill-intentioned pastors pitch tithing to Christians as a spiritual discipline designed to yield monetary blessings. Now, don't get me wrong. God wants you to be generous. And I'm a firm believer that greater blessings will occur in your life as a result. On a side note, that doesn't always mean a greater bank balance. But blessings will occur nonetheless if you're generous with your money. I promise you. I can say that definitively. However, I can also say with complete and absolute certainty that God does not want the motivation behind your generosity to be a desire to earn more of his generosity. We've been traveling through Galatians. Does that strike a chord with you? Because that's the law, right? Give money to the church. Why? Because God will give money back. Wait, isn't that not, the, not grace? Doesn't that strike against this concept of unmerited favor? That I'm trying to earn something? That by my actions, I'm trying to attain something? Something I've already been given? It's true. We'll unpack it a little bit more next Sunday. But I want to say this, and this is why I present an illustration. This idea, Christian karma, is not the idea of sowing and reaping. It's not what Paul's communicating at all. This word, whatever, whatever a man sows, in the Greek is the pronoun H-O-S. And while this particular word can 
be translated as which, that, or what. And just as many instances in the New Testament, that particular word, hos, H-O-S, can be translated as whom, who, or whose. Let me give you an example just to validate this particular point. Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. We, we have whoever, same word as whatever, breaks one of the least of the commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever, same word, does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So this word can be translated whatever or whoever. Now I'm of the opinion that in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, it would be better translated, not as whatever, but instead something like this, for whom a man sows, that he will also reap. Like the emphasis in the Greek is not particularly on sowing or reaping, for that matter, but rather on the locale in which the activity is occurring or taking place. Notice the context. Paul says immediately following this, for he who sows to his flesh will reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. The emphasis is not on sowing and reaping, but the locale in which the activity is taking place. The point is that sowing to the flesh will yield a much different result than sowing to the Spirit. That's what he's saying. The first will reap corruption. In the Greek, this word corruption, it means eternal destruction. While the latter yields everlasting life. And I don't think it's an accident that while Paul does define the results of reaping to the flesh or to the spirit, he doesn't particularly define what's being sown. Did you notice that? The implication is that whatever is, quote, sown to the flesh will always reap corruption and whatever is, quote, sown to the Spirit will of the Spirit always reap everlasting life. Now understand, the correct diagnosis to the existence of sin in your life, my life, the life of the believer, is that greater energy is being sown to the flesh as opposed to the Spirit like even the best efforts, sincerest desires, and greater disciplines employed by your flesh in the attempt of earning or maintaining God's favor or the development of godliness will reap corruption. Why? Because it employs the efforts of your flesh. Your flesh is incapable. It doesn't matter what motivates or what it intends. It's incapable of producing anything that pleases God. That's why legalism doesn't work. And yet, notice the miracle of grace. Even though you might be the one sowing to the Spirit, did you notice you're not the one reaping? Like you're not, you're not active in the reaping process? When you're sowing to the Spirit, but then it is only of the Spirit, right? That you will reap everlasting life. A lot of the spirit involved in that, right? Not much of you, a lot of the spirit. Little of you, very active work of God. Which means that if you spend time in God's word, 
If you spend time in prayer or in worship or around like-minded believers and community, not because you have to, which would be the law, but because you want to, as this reciprocating effect of, of all that God's done for you, you want to worship him. You want to read the Bible. You want to spend time with him in prayer. You want to hang around other people who are doing the same things. You don't have to. You get to. You want to. Things have changed. Things have transformed. If that's the case, Paul's making a promise here that the Spirit will reap incredible results in your life. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. It's not just... If I walk in the spirit, I won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That only gets me halfway. I don't want to just not do the lust of the flesh. I want to see the fruit of the spirit. Walking in the spirit will yield the same thing. Employing this concept of spiritually reaping what's sown. Paul's hammering home here. The reality that it's impossible for you and I to see the spirit reap godly results without first taking the time to sow into the Spirit. I'll say it again. It's impossible for you to see the Spirit reap godly results in your life without first taking the time to sow into the Spirit, which, by the way, you're all doing right now. Reaping necessitates one first properly sow the right seed, which speaks to our motivations, in the right place, the Spirit. I'd be amiss if I also didn't point out that Paul says, quote, he who sows, in the Greek, the, the tense there is, is active, present active, meaning he who is in the habit of sowing. It's not here a one-time thing. Like, I open the Bible and I read a verse and ta-da, spiritual fruit. Or I go to church once and it's like, ta-da, my life is grand and great and things are happening. It's not I put the seed, I pour a little water, and I come out the next day hoping for a tree. Like that's, it's the habit, it's the continuation of sowing. But, but Paul says, he was in the habit of sowing shall, shall, which, interestingly enough, so our activity is present active. The results shall is future active. So I'm sowing, I shall in the future reap, okay? So there's this disconnect and this time delineation between sowing and reaping. You know, in using this particular agricultural analogy, Paul is letting us know that the results of reaping, they not only require continued and faithful sowing on our part, but that the process of reaping it takes time. It takes time. It's been said. I heard one pastor this week use this quote. He didn't reference it, and it's too good to be his. So I'm just going to say it's been said. Can't give him credit. There's no way he came up with this. I'm not going to name him, but if he ever listens, he'll know it was him. He's like, that was my quote. No. It's been said, you sow a thought. You reap an action. You sow an action, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a character. You sow a character, you reap a destiny. You don't sow a thought and reap a destiny. 
there is a progress. There is a, a, a way these things unfold. If, if your marriage is on the rocks because of your flesh, and you've gotten that, like, I realize I'm the problem, and that the solution is more the Holy Spirit. Like, if we're there in that concept, right? And you're like, we've prayed, like, twice, and uh, we're starting to read the Bible every other week. We've come to church once this quarter. And, you know, Zach, um, things are just still rotten. <laughs> well, you're not actually sowing much. And what you are, I would just say, keep it up. Like, keep it up. Once again, not because you have to. This is not some legalistic bent. But there's a concept at play. You know, it's, it's, pro it's possible, like, that in this process, whereby we sow to the Spirit, and then we wait for the Spirit to reap a result, that two things can happen. And Paul acknowledges this. Look at verse 9. He says, do not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Like, friend, if there's, a, if there's a passage in Galatians to highlight, it's this, don't grow weary. In, in the Greek, grow weary, it was used to describe someone who slacked in their efforts, but they have slacked in their efforts as a result of, of not slothfulness, but of prolonged labor. Is that they've been working and they've been working and they've been working and they've been working, and then they're just naturally tired. It's like you don't, you don't come along, somebody that's worked, you know, two doubles in a row, and it's like, hey, man, pick up the pace. It's like, I've been, I've been waiting tables for 48 hours, man. Like, cut me some slack. I'm tired, naturally. And, and then this idea of to lose heart, it, it spoke of a woman who in the midst of labor, and there's always that moment that they think to themselves, I can't do it. I'm done. Put a fork in me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm working at this, man. I'm working, I'm working, I'm pushing, I'm pushing. And then it's like, I've lost heart. I'm gonna die. Like, this is terrible. Like, that's what he's communicating here in, in growing weary, not in being a sloth. You're trying. You're doing the things that are necessary to sow in the Spirit. You're not seeing the, the results, but it's okay. Keep on. The baby's coming. Push on. Push through. How easily it is that we can grow weary and lose heart because our spiritual lives aren't progressing at the clip that we desire. And yet, Paul's exhortation is to press on anyway, knowing that in due season, he says, we shall reap. It's a guarantee. It's a promise. Philippians 3, verses, verse 12, Paul says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. If you're sowing to the Spirit and you don't feel like you're seeing a result, it's designed that way, but don't give up. Keep sowing. For in due season, when the season is right, you will see the result. There are no shortcuts, friend, to this process. While many of us would prefer to plant fully developed, mature plants, right? Spiritual development is described as seed sowing. It's the only way growth takes place. We sow seeds, seeds, they're small. 
I want to plant plants, man. I want to see immediate results. But that's not the way that it works. And yet, with time, isn't it true that even the smallest seed grows into a large tree? Let me give you a couple examples here. Let's say prayer, your prayer life is a big thing. You're like, I, I know. Like, I want to spend, I want to pray more. Like, I want that to be part, part of my life. Like, I see the benefits of it. I, I know it's important. I want, to be, I want to be a prayer warrior. Like, I could give a sermon about prayer, and every one of you leave, like, I'm going to pray, I mean, every morning for like an hour and a half. No, you're not. You're not at all. If you're not already praying for an hour and a half each morning, you're not going to leave here and start doing that. But I would say what you're trying to do is plant a fully developed tree when instead you should just start by sowing some seeds. Like, let me give you an example. If you just prayed five minutes, three times a day, let's say at the times you eat. Not, Lord, thank you for this food, blah, 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 move on. But like a genuine, like, I'm, I'm going to eat my lunch break. I'm just going to take a minute, five minutes, and I'm just going to spend some time with the Lord. Don't set a stopwatch, but just let's say five times, three times a day. That would total 15 minutes a day. Not the hour and a half you wanted, it's just 15 minutes. But in just a year, you would have spent 5,475 minutes in prayer or 91 and a quarter hours or roughly four days of your year. Four, I prayed for four whole days this year? Yeah, five minutes, three times a day. It wasn't the hour and a half marathon so that you could be like James known as camel knees. Like, look at my calluses. I'm always on my knees praying. No, just start simple, right? I, I should read more of the word. Like, I want to. I don't have to, but I enjoy it. Man, I'm going to get one of those Bible reading plans. I'm going to go out. I'm going to read like four chapters a day. No, you're not. Because you're going to get to numbers at some point. And four chapters of numbers? Like, I don't care where you are in your spiritual, like, development. That's a struggle, right? Names I can't pronounce, and lots of noethys, and it's just terrible. It's God's word, it's good, but it's terrible, right? <laughs> you're like, I'm going to read through the, no, you're not. Instead, how about this? Like, let's just sow some seed there. How about 25 verses? Sometimes that's a chapter. Sometimes it's a chapter and a half. Sometimes it's a whole book. Sometimes it's like half a chapter. If you're in Psalms 119, it's like a quarter of the chapter. It's a long chapter. But let's just say 25 verses a day. Do you realize that that would equate to 9,125 verses for the year, meaning that you would be able to read by the year's end through the entire New Testament, which is 7,959 verses plus all 12 minor prophets. I could have said like 33% of Isaiah, but 12 other books sounded cool. My point, 25 verses a day, not much. Start there. Or find, read 10, find one verse to chew on. Something that you can carry with you all day. You know, if you were to take advantage of everything Calvary 316 offers, from Sunday morning to our women's events, to men's events, to potlucks, everything. It would total approximately 10 hours a month, roughly 120 hours yearly. 
which is not much. That actually equates to 20 minutes a day. Like, that's what we ask. Like, if you wanted to set 20 minutes a day aside, you could be not just involved in your church, but super committed. Like, I never miss a Sunday. I come to everything. 20 minutes a day. I have a greater time commitment investment to an ESPN show that's 22 minutes a day with commercials. 22 minutes. Seed, right? That's what we're talking about. Which, by the way, 20 minutes a day, that's five days of the year. Like, you could be super committed to Calvary 316 and really only invest five full days. Which, you know, and I had fun with the math, is 1.3% of your time. Maybe I'm overextending it. Let's just say you came every Sunday. Forget about the other things, just Sunday mornings. One and a half hours a Sunday. That ends up being 78 hours a year, which would only now be a 13-minute-a-day commitment. 3.25 days, or roughly 0.8% of your time. Like, when we just ask you to come to church on Sunday, like, we're not asking much. You know, if you were to make an every other week dinner date, you know, dinner date night with your wife a priority. I had to be real careful here because I'm going to get held to this. That's why I did every other week. Just, you know, we've got to figure out something manageable. Okay, that's 60, still doing it. 60 bucks for dinner, $40 for two hours for the sitter. I'm just kind of roughing some numbers there. You know, that would yield a huge result in your, in your marriage. Like every other week, you leave the kids with a sitter, you and your wife just go two hours, just dinner. We're not even talking about the movie, just go to dinner. You sit and you talk and you eat and you drink and you have a good time. Investing, small seeds, that's eight and a half minutes a day. Eight and a half minutes to invest into your marriage, plus a whopping budget of $7.12 a day. Like, forego Mickey D's, man, and invest into your marriage. It would be better for you, trust me. Now, in order to see the fruit of the Spirit yielded in your life, God simply asks that you sow seed to the Spirit. (laughs) You don't have to have a go big or go home mentality. My point is start small and be strategic. Now, let's get back to verse six. Because I said, we got to set a concept, the greater concept before then we get to this particular verse. The context is Paul's exhortation, right? The idea of sowing to the spirit as being critical if we're to see the spirit yield a reciprocal work, right? That's what he's talking about. So Paul says, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. I don't want to get off topic, but because money is such an issue of controversy, I think it's important I say right from the start that being generous with your financial resources is not an option. In multiple passages throughout Scripture, generosity in much the same way as love is presented as evidence of a spirit-filled Christian. It's been said, generosity is, is the most natural outward expression of an inner attitude of compassion and loving kindness. 
It should also be pointed out that scripture speaks of giving as a matter of obedience to God, stewardship of his resources, faith in his provincial care, as well as an act of worship. Proverbs 3, 9, we're told to honor God with your possessions, with the first fruits of your increase. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul wrote, God loves a cheerful or hilarious giver. He loves that. If you've ever wondered, what can I really do to express to the Lord how deeply thankful I am for all he's done for me? Notice that's grace and not law. I'm not earning anything. I'm not trying to get anything. I just want to express, right? This reciprocal thing. He's so good. How can I express that back? The answer, love others and be generous. God loves a cheerful giver. Admittedly, when it comes to discussions about the importance of paying the pastor, which is what Paul's saying in verse six, I really would prefer to leave these topics to one of our elders who, as all laymen, have no financial benefit. Like, I really do sympathize with what Martin Luther wrote in his commentary on this passage. He wrote this. He says, these passages are meant to benefit us ministers. I must say, though, I do not find much pleasure in explaining these verses. I am made to appear as if I am speaking for my own benefit. So this is a sticky place for me to be, and it's a sticky place for you to be, but it's God's word, so we're going to roll. Ultimately, these kind of topics are by and large cringeworthy because the honest and brutal reality is that many pastors abuse this particular principle. That's the truth. I ain't gonna hide from that. It's almost a weekly occurrence that mega church pastors find themselves in headlines, right? Over some type of financial abuse. And you're sitting there thinking, why in the world am I gonna give to support the pastor when he's driving a Mercedes? Or he's you know, hobnobbing around with celebrities or flying in private jets or this or that. Like just last month, a RICO lawsuit was filed against Mars Hill Church and specifically Mark Driscoll in the U.S. District Court of the Western District of, of Washington over the abuse of finances, things being allocated for things they were not intending to be allocated towards. Like, I get it. Paul says, support the guy teaching you. And you're like, eh, Mm, mm. I don't know about that. I get it. I understand it. Now, in order to be transparent, knowing this is the case, and for full disclosure, our bylaws at Calvary 316 place the establishment of my salary completely on the elder's discretion. I have no say in what I'm paid, and these decisions are made on a yearly basis by the men God has called and you have confirmed. With that being said, Calvary 316, just to get it out there, pays me $40,000 a year to be your pastor with an additional benefits package of $10,000 for ministry-related expenses. Truth, I'm totally humbled I'm paid anything. Because even if the church couldn't afford me to pay, to pay me anything, I'd find another job and do it anyway. I love what I'm called to do, and I'm called to do it regardless of what finances do or don't exist. I'm not in it for the money. Also note, if you give of your financial resources to Calvary 316 and have any questions about my pay, how the finances are managed, or what measures are in place to ensure accountability, never hesitate ever to either ask me or one of our elders to sit down and go over the books with you, if you give. 
Our desire is nothing but to be completely and utterly transparent. We understand the culture we're in. So with that out of the way, and now in order to fulfill my job of teaching you verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the whole counsel of God, I can't avoid verse six. You can't avoid verse six. So let's get into it. Paul is saying, he's stressing. You try to go back into the original language and find some other way to read it, you're not. Universally, it's accepted that what Paul is communicating here as he's stressing to the Galatians the importance of financially supporting the teacher that they are specifically benefiting from spiritually. Now, it's true. Paul never took a salary from any of the churches he started with one exception. And yet, this specific exhortation emerges constantly in his writings. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 11, Paul wrote, If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? Paul said it, I didn't. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 14. Even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Once again, Paul, not me. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Now let me explain just for a moment why paying the person you've chosen to faithfully teach you the word of God is important. As a church, the Bible describes us as a living organism filled with people who have differing gifts and callings that support and benefit the body at large. Everyone's role is important, it's it's central, it's critical. And while everyone's role, calling, and giftings are necessary for the church to be healthy, and for the church to fulfill Jesus' design. What makes the pastor's role, the pastor's job, unique is that he's called to support and equip every part of the body through the effective teaching of God's word. You have gifts and abilities that benefit the body and are fundamental in us fulfilling God's calling. My job is to exhort and encourage you in those gifts and callings, to equip you and exhort you and teach you The simple reality is that a church will struggle to remain efficient without a full-time pastor dedicating more than volunteerism can allow. It's just the facts. Like, I hope this goes without saying, but aside from running the, the, the necessary business side of a church, the organization, as well as coordinating the organizational needs that, that make a living organism exist, it takes a lot of time, energy, and effort to pour over God's word, to pray, to unpack its meaning, and then craft a coherent, relevant message every single week. I had someone someone tell me that, you know, why can't pastors be more entertaining than comedians? They do the same thing. Yeah, if I could have one sermon I could go on tour with, it'd be great. I gotta come up with new material every single Sunday and make it where you're not bored to death. Paul's logic here is that in order for the pastor to fulfill his calling, the calling of ministering to the whole, the financial needs should be met by the whole of the pastor so he has the time to effectively do his job. According to research, a survey conducted by Tom Rainier, the median time pastors spend in sermon prep across America is only 13 hours. Half less, half more. 
This reality explains why there's so few solid Bible teachers in America. On average, I spend somewhere between 25 and 30 hours a week prepping for Sunday's study. I fall into a category where only 3% of pastors uh, exist. Part of that is because I'm slow and I read slow and I'm not smart. So I'm, you know, I'm cutting down a tree with a, with a dull blade. I get it. Takes me, takes me longer. If I was smarter, maybe I could be more efficient. It is what it is. Either way, I do hope that you recognize the hard, the hard work that I put into teaching God's word. Like for better, for worse, even if I preach a sermon and it falls flat, like it's, it's a dud. I hope you can at least recognize he spent a lot of time laying that egg. That was a terrible Bible study, man, but I do appreciate you put a lot of time into that. I, I hope you can, you, can, you can recognize the desire that the heaven forbid anyone come to our church and leave thinking that I simply strolled into the pulpit unprepared to handle God's word. Heaven forbid. I stand, I'll stand before God for that, that I'm simply winging it. Like, I can't say enough how deeply thankful and grateful I am that you all see such a value in being effectively taught God's word that you not only show up to listen, anybody shows up to listen to me, it's like God's grace. But the fact that many of you financially support this church and me specifically so that I can fulfill God's call in my life I'm thankful. I'm, I am humbled by that, that, by that reality. Now, as we wrap things up, don't forget the context. God has designed the spiritual life to only work one way. You will reap of the Spirit, which is what we all want, when you sow of the Spirit. Not only... Will this continued act of faithful obedience enable you to resist the pull of the flesh and its intent to reap corruption in your life, but that this is the only mechanism by which you'll slowly begin to see your life transform more into the image and likeness of Jesus? That said, if growing to be more like Jesus is the ultimate work of grace, empowered by the indwelling spirit, then one thing that will result is greater generosity. Because was there ever a more generous person than Jesus? This morning, if you believe your ability to walk in the Spirit would be unaffected without the involvement of Calvary 316 in your life, then I encourage you to find a church where that position could never be stated. The spiritual life predicated upon sowing demands Christian community, as well as the involvement of godly, Bible-based, effective teachers. However, if you and your family are spiritually benefiting through the things God is doing in and through this particular church community, if Calvary 316 is helping you, so do the Spirit, then I pray you would enable the work, enable the work to continue through your financial support. Let's look at our text again as we close. Paul says, 
Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season you shall reap if you don't lose heart. And so, Father, Lord, we want to allow that to just settle in.